0: Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty, the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. In this episode, our guests are Nathan Goldberg and Yvette effort from the Harvard Forward Organization, Nathan is a co-founder, and Yvette is one of three petition candidates running for election to the Harvard Board of Overseers. They are young, they are progressive, and they want change. On the Zoom session with me are classmates Fred Easter from Minneapolis, John Woodford from Ann Arbor, Jerry Secundi from Pasadena, Connie McDougall from New York City, and Ezra Griffith from New Haven, Connecticut. Plus, we are joined by classmates Bill Collins from Aiken, South Carolina, Greg Allen from Los Angeles, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Cindy Waddle from Tuscany, Italy, Harvey Hacker from San Francisco, Nick Bancroft from Medfield, Massachusetts, Ken Manister from Los Altos, California, Ron Blau from Cambridge, and Mike Hartwick from Key West, Florida. Here is Nathan Goldberg.
1: My, my name is Nathan Goldberg. I graduated from the college in 2018. Um, I'm in Austin, Texas. Uh, it is about in somewhere in the high 40s right now, but it's coming on the back of a full week below freezing uh, that really hit hit the state very hard. Um, but we're we're on the other side of it now. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Harvard Forward, which uh, As some of you may know, is uh, an effort to elect um, petition candidates to the board of overseers um, on a particular platform that that we feel reflects um, what Harvard alumni want to see from Harvard in terms of being a leader in in the world stage in fighting some of the biggest challenges of the 21st century, uh, but also making Harvard more Accountable to its community members, to its alumni, to its faculty, to its students, um, instead of just letting, you know, Harvard do its own thing without having some sort of check on the direction that we want to see the university move in. Um, and, you know, I know that we will have more, more time to chat about that, but just wanted to do the one line intro. Uh, and Yvette is one of our wonderful candidates that we're running for um, the board this year. She just qualified for the ballot by gathering signatures from more than 3,000 alumni. Um, And I'll I'll let her introduce herself.
2: Um, And hi, again, my name is Yvette Efebera. I graduated from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health uh, with my master's in 2011 and then my doctorate in 2018. And I was also a resident tutor in Cabot House, uh, formerly South House as well. Um, I am really excited actually to be in conversation with all of you today, um, especially I, I think around the linkages with our, our racial justice uh, platform um, through Harvard Forward. Would you
3: spell your last name Yvette?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's um, E like Edward, F like Frank, E like Edward, V like Victor, B like boy, E like Edward, R like rabbit, A like apple. And if you are curious where it is from, uh, it's from Nigeria. Um, I am a second generation um, here in the US, uh, but I was born and raised in a small town called Big Rapids in Michigan. Oh, yeah, just <laughs> made so John very happy. <laughs> yeah, and my parents are still there, actually.
0: <laughs> so, so, what what are the issues then? What are the basic, specific issues that we're we should be thinking about?
1: Yeah, so uh, I mean, I'll give like a really quick overview um, of the Harvard Forward platform, um, which really started. So, we we launched the first campaign in 2019 um, with a slate of five candidates running on what was a climate justice and inclusive governance platform. Um, We were really focused on, uh, you know, pushing the university to divest from fossil fuels, uh, getting them to invest more into their climate-focused research and education, um, and really trying to make the Board of Overseers a little bit more transparent and more representative of the alumni population, given that, um, on average, the, you know, the members of the board had not been students at Harvard for about three decades. Um, and just, you know, like, like Yvette was saying, so many things have changed in the last couple of decades that just having those perspectives in the room can make the board, you know, better informed as they're, as they're weighing all the factors that they weigh in pushing the university um, forward. But throughout our conversations with thousands of alumni and students and faculty members and just members of the Harvard community, um, we felt that another issue or sets of issues that um, alumni really wanna see Harvard take leadership on fall under the umbrella of racial justice. Um, And so in conversations with last year candidates, with supporters, um, we decided that we were gonna add racial justice as an explicit plank of the 2021 platform and the 2021 campaign efforts. Um, and you know, there's a lot that falls under that umbrella, uh, a couple of specific things that, that we are talking about include, um, the creation of an ethnic studies department and an ethnic studies concentration, um, within the college, which is something that students and alumni for, I mean, going on 50 years now have been, uh, organizing for advocating for pushing for that the university has not yet committed to, um. And extending the, the notion of having, you know, socially responsible and morally correct investments in our endowment to the prison industrial complex. Um, so divesting from from prisons, divesting from um, companies whose main business is to make money off of prisons. Um, but we also have kind of like a, a catch all term in um, developing and implementing anti-racism initiatives at the university across schools um, just because we know that there's so many things that we could be doing better, uh, and this is, you know, Yvette is actually um, really a, a, an expert in this, and and in the time that she spent at Harvard working on, um, you know, anti-racism and and diversity and inclusion initiatives, uh, that I'm sure she'll uh, she'll be willing to elaborate on. Uh, but there's so much, and, and you can't fit it into three bullet points like we do other things in our platform. Um, and it's really important to, to listen to other members um, of the Harvard alumni community who have different perspectives than we do to make sure that our platform really reflects what the entire alumni community is thinking. Um, that's what that's what I'll, I'll say about that.
2: Yeah, maybe I can just elaborate a little and then would love to kind of open it up and hear questions or thoughts. Um, you know, I think I would say I get a lot of questions about why I would be running for the Board of Overseers and what's the point of this group. And, uh, you know, I think at the heart of it, for me, I care a lot about um, the university, but also the lives that it impacts. Um, Whether or not we choose to be affiliated or close to it or not, we know Harvard's voice really matters. And there is such an important opportunity. With something like the Board of Overseers, which is an advisory body that directly works with the university president and provides high level guidance across the whole university, there's a huge opportunity to really push for the university to be more intentionally, socially responsible and inclusive with the voices that it listens to and it values. As Nathan was saying, you know, alumni from the 3,000 who have supported my candidacy as well as um, the two others um, who, who weren't able to be on the line today. They have said, and I personally feel, that issues like racial and climate justice are areas where they affect so many lives and the university has the opportunity to be more intentional about how it says, yes, we're in a moment in time where we have to do differently. On racial justice specifically, you know, I spent seven years um, on Harvard's campus, um, three of those years living in in the undergraduate residence halls. And I will tell you as someone who um, worked extensively with both the School of Public Health and the college, um, there are still so many gaps in how the university says, we value everybody's life regardless of the color of your skin. Um, I myself, was actually um, uh, a victim of a a really, really inappropriate interaction with Harvard University Police, um, which stemmed from, I think, a lack of awareness and understanding about all of the members of the community who do actually belong. So I am so, um, I'm really passionate and really excited about the opportunity that we have to keep collecting perspectives of what matters from alumni whether you know, recent alumni or those who are, are much further out um, and really thinking about how we bring those voices and perspectives to pushing the university to say, it's not enough to just be silent and pretend that that means that you're not taking a stance. The university's silence on a lot of these issues is the university taking a stance and we wanna help them take the right stance.
4: They have to first acknowledge what they are intentionally not doing. Exactly or doing. Exactly. General question, which is, I really don't understand the Board of Supervisors. What kind of action can you take to influence Harvard? And maybe an example of actions that have been taken in in the past that have.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So a few things um, from my understanding, and I would say that. In true Harvard fashion, uh, from the outside, we don't, there's not a lot of transparency, right, around all of the inner workings of the board. But a few areas where I see direct, immediate opportunity to take action. One is that um, the Board of Overseers is responsible for approving uh, the, the, the individuals who manage the, um, the endowment, the university's nearly $42 billion endowment. So the opportunity to actually say, yes, we're gonna support the appointment of this person to the Harvard Management Corporation who has demonstrated values in socially responsible investing um, is a huge opportunity. That's, that's $42 billion worth of opportunity right there. So that's, that's one place. Um, a second place is that the board actually um, is responsible for these um, uh, visiting committees which um, are are smaller bodies that go and visit different departments and kind of assess how the university is doing. And there are some great examples, for example, from the 70s, where the board was asking specific questions about the role of women in departments like the economic department, or was asking about, you know, what is the orientation of the type of, of education that's being offered in the economics department? Are we not being inclusive of different ideologies and different um, different epistemological views of these topics by asking those types of questions and putting out these final recommendations and reports the board actually then had an influence on ensuring that there was greater inclusivity in the way that the education department um, reformed and this is something that happens across departments so those are just two I would say um, seemingly small but really impactful ways that that having um, our voices kind of represented on the board can play a huge role in the direction of the university.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll just add, you know, um, we've been frustrated with, with Harvard's um, unwillingness to, to open up about, you know, how its governance actually works. We've, we, we're, on, we're going on two years now of asking for the Board of Overseers bylaws uh, multiple times and we've just never been given access to the bylaws or any clear rationale for why those are not accessible to members of the Harvard community. Uh, so some of the actual powers that the board has are still unknown to us, uh, but you know, we, we have historical examples. And one of my favorite ones is, is from the twenties of the board you know, getting together and standing up to, to advance racial justice. And this was when President Lowell um, was intent on, on um, you know, keeping a policy of racial segregation in the first year undergraduate dormitories. Um, alumni organized to, to push the board of, um, you know, the board to overturn President Lowell's policy. Um, and so apparently, you know, if, if the entire board gets together to Push for something, they can override the university president um, if it's something that 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 really you know matters to them. So we we know that there are things that the board can do uh, to move Harvard forward if it chooses to exercise its influence.
4: Does Harvard really invest in private prisons? Thank you, thank you. Uh,
1: so the short answer is yes. Um, the the real question is how much um, and that's you know debated we work um, and support the student organizers and alumni organizers for the harvard prison divestment campaign Um, they've done some analysis on their end that puts first of all i'll say out of the 42 billion dollars that harvard has invested only somewhere around one and two percent of that is public and, and, you know, you can actually look through and see what funds Harvard has money in. Um, It's roughly 2%, but 1% of that is gold holdings. So really 1% of what we have, we know what it, what it's invested in. Um, But looking at just that, the Harvard prison divestment campaign, you know, figured out uh, what funds were invested in extrapolated from that, you know, in their analysis there are you know several million dollars invested not just not just in prisons directly but in uh companies whose main business or core business is uh prison related um larry backout came out when that report <coughs> was released and pushed back and said something like well you know we disagree with this we only have $20,000 invested <laughs> directly in private prisons, um, which I, I mean, I don't know what was going on in Harvard's communications department that they thought that that was like a good thing to highlight. Uh, but to me, like if $30,000 too much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like if, if it were true that the, you know, if the true number was $20,000 and they didn't just take it out before making the press release, um, so anyway that's that directly
4: uh, is the key word there that's kind of a
5: hedging word
3: well i was just wondering do you have any insight into the board's intransigence in other words is it like the papacy or something like that the vatican you know that it's (laughs) we don't want anybody to mess with our establishment so that's just we want to hold on to power like that's why they Immediately, when there are three candidates approved and to join the board, the board changed the rules and say, "No, we are only going to have a certain percentage of these outside interlopers doing it." So, is it just holding on to power, or is there something beyond that, and you know, particular personalities?
2: Maybe I would say first, um, and I, I know Nathan can tell you from from the two years. Um, that, you know, that, that the Harvard Forward effort's been going. But for those who aren't familiar, what, what Ron was just referring to was um, after um, successfully getting five petition candidates on the ballot last year, um, of those who were elected, three of the new um, uh, Board of Overseers uh, officers last year were Harvard Forward candidates. And in response, the university changed its policy about petition candidates being able to get onto the ballot and get elected to where only six petition candidates at any kind of point in time can serve on the board of overseers together. Um, so just to make sure everyone kind of has that, that understanding first. Um, you know, I have to say, Ron, I, I think that um, my sense from the outside is a couple of things. One, we do know that you know Board of Overseers members have to sign non-disclosure agreements and have kind of a, a strong uh, red tape about what they can and can't share. Um, but that does raise questions, right? About why the need to be so quiet on some things, why the lack of transparency on some things, um, why the hesitancy to listen to thousands of alumni voices that are saying, As a starting point, we just want to know. We want to know where Harvard's endowment is going, right? I I think it does point to um, the likelihood. Of course, we don't know for sure, but it points to the likelihood that there is something that the university doesn't want us all to see because that might lead to different questions and different pushes. The last thing I would say is that as a candidate right now, um, it has been a bit alarming to see some of the ways in which we get pushback. And for me, coming into this as someone who spent seven years on Harvard's campus, trying to advance things like racial justice and running up against administration as a student, right? And as a staff of the university, I knew that if I was ever going to engage with the university again, it would have to be at a level where someone would actually value and listen to my perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's been quite alarming to see the ways in which I've gotten pushback. So if anything, it's inspired me to keep going as a candidate here, because I think the fact that the university and and others uh, associated with the university have responded so strongly against our candidacy, it it tells me that we're in the direction of pushing for change in a way that the university will have to listen to because it's what alumni are asking for.
3: What kind of pushback, if I may ask? Yeah, (laughs) well,
2: um, you know, just, one example, and Nathan, I hope it's okay that I share some of this. Um, so um, we just had a global networking night um, and there were so many of us, myself included, who were so excited um, to be able to just meet with alumni to share that this is you know, an effort that's going on to share information with, um, with Harvard alumni uh, to make them aware of it. And there was some really, really strong response um, from some of the global networking, one, excuse me, of the global networking night related events um, that uh, involved CCing in lawyers actually, saying that people felt harassed, people felt bullied, um, that, that there was something about the Harvard Forward platform and the way of sharing with others, excitement about the Harvard Forward platform um, that, that, that made members feel uncomfortable. Now, I think it's really serious if people really felt uncomfortable with any sort of exchange to have a conversation around how we're also communicating how deeply we care about these issues and and where there's opportunity. But it was very alarming for me as a candidate to immediately see lawyers cc'd in, to not have had real outreach or dialogue around what the problems really were, and to have general blanket statements about Harvard forward, rather than evidence about specific incidents that were leading to
5: any kind of complaint that came forward. That's just one example. I'd like to, Ken, can I pose a question? Yeah, that's right. Um, I take it for granted that any big organization that's been around uh, a long time uh, has its own interests to protect. Uh, you know, I've, I've spent 40 years where I am and, and I know Yale has its own ideas and the groups in charge, just naturally, and this is a natural sort of, not only political, but it's a natural sort of psychological tendency. We pass on the leadership positions and so on to people who are most like us, right? So, I always wonder when we get into these conversations, and and, and I'm just being theoretical now, I'm not advocating a position, not yet, (laughs) but how, how, I mean how, how do you convince me that your the, the position that your group would advocate for is is necessarily the best uh, because and here we here I distinguish between opposing what exists in the present board versus what you want to bring to it I mean how do I how do I know that what you want to bring to it is what I naturally after thought would agree with and I say this because, It's taken me a long time uh, over the last, you know, I'd say 15, 20 years to understand that, for example, in just the general secular political movement in the country, there is such a thing as a black Republican. It, It really took me a long time to understand that, because in terms of politics, my natural tendency and my family's tendency is to go democratic with democratic ideas so. So it's taken me a while to understand that, yes, there are some thoughtful people who are Republicans, thoughtful people who are independents, and a democratic platform and notion isn't necessarily correct. So I, I take on, as a, you know, as, a, as, a, as a long academic, an aging academic, I would take on your issue of ethnic studies, which I, I think I know very, very well. And why should I assume that the notion your, your your platform would bring to the idea of ethnic studies, how ethnic studies should be implemented and so on in a university context is superior to anything as I may have heard and certainly how is it better than what I might want to bring myself? I, I, so, so try and see if you can help me un- understand how you all reach your your philosophical positions, your political positions, and, and why why should I give credence to the idea that your notion of you know being revolutionary is superior to the traditional interests that other people on on the board of overseers might reasonably have?
2: Nathan, do you want to start with the Harvard Forward perspective, and then I'll share mine specifically?
1: Yes, yes. Um, so I think. Um, you know, what, what is undergirding the Harvard Forward Platform is really a desire to bring the university administration closer to the issues that alumni and students and faculty care about. Um, so it's less about you know, me, Nathan and Yvette saying like, Oh, this is how this is exactly how ethnic studies needs to happen. Because I, I wasn't one of the organizers for ethnic studies. When I was um, at school, I wasn't, I wasn't even an organizer for for divest Harvard either. Um, so when we went about crafting the platform, we were focusing on issues that we know have, you know, long term, deep support across alumni across students and choosing to elevate the voices of those people who have been organizing and the way that we're going through the development of the platform is bringing in those groups who have the right perspective you know and who have been doing this organizing for a long time and engaging them and saying hey you know how do you you know what have you been fighting for the last 50 years we want to give you the opportunity to advocate for that at the very highest level of the university by jumping over you know the all the bureaucracy that exists because we want to elect people to the board who will listen to you and who will be transparent, you know, and, and who will be hopefully getting the rest of the board to also open up and and listen to alumni and student perspectives uh, so that they're not just carrying out their will in a little vacuum um, sealed off. So that's, I mean, I think that's like, I, I can get into more details about any, any part of the platform, but it's all you know, infused with the desire to elevate the voices of people who have been organizing for things that we know alumni care about as opposed to imposing our own views. Um,
2: if I can just add to this, you know, I I, I think personally for me as a candidate, um, it's, it's about three things. One is about democracy and really pushing to say, this should be a democratic, process that alumni should have the opportunity to voice perspectives on what matters and to have the opportunity to support different types of candidates rather than the traditional way in which candidates are selected, which is the Harvard Alumni Association identifies the list of candidates that are then put forward. There is an importance about vetting, yes, but also sometimes when the Harvard uh, Alumni Association selects candidates, it is not reflective of the full diversity of the Harvard alumni community. So for me, there's one piece I'm saying with our platform, like we just wanna actually push the university to think about its, its democratic processes in how it elects um, Board of Overseers members. The second area I would say is about timing. We are in a moment right now um, that is unlike many others that I've experienced in my lifetime. Uh, You know, I think a lot about what the past year has been in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, where it is a a, a global health crisis, unlike unlike others that many others have seen. Uh, When I think about the ways in which systemic racism has come to the forefront of this country specifically in a way that it hasn't in decades. Um, And it is a really key key opportunity to actually be socially responsible and take a stand and say, we recognize that there is a new wave of of movement happening, uh, a wave that we haven't had for several decades in this country, although I lived in Namibia um, back in the early 2000s right after apartheid, so it's happened in other countries. In other spaces, um, but it, but it is a it is a moment where I think as as leaders as leading institutions as leading voices we do have an obligation to actually say there is a right and a wrong, and 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 to and to and to actually actively think about acknowledging it first so that we can figure out what the actions are. The last thing I would just say, Ezra, is that I think there's a, a piece on partnership here as well. As a candidate, I have views that are different from the other two Harvard forward supported candidates, but we can align on the high level areas based on what alumni and other organizers have shared are important. We we have those common kind of foundational pieces to say, yes, we do want the university to be more inclusive of these views. My personal orientation is one of um, collaboration and partnership. You know, I work right now at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, another massive organization um, where change can be incremental. And I'm not going to have the same views as everyone that I'm thinking about in terms of how we invest in areas. But at the Gates Foundation, as an example, we've said something like gender equality, which is the space that I work in, in global health. We've said that's important. We've already aligned to say that's important and that we're going to put dollars and we're going to invest into trying to move the needle on that. The next piece then is working with people who are different, who have different views about figuring out what specifically and how exactly you execute on that. But we can't do that until at least as a governing body, at least as a, as a decision-making space, there is even alignment on some of the issues that matter the most.
4: I think the question is the wrong question to ask, if I may, Ezra. Um, what we have now are people that say neglect me and then shut up, and I'll do what I want to do, and you can't know. Rather than have people who are willing to be open about what they think and what they uh, advocate for, and I think that's a major upgrade.
1: And and I'll just say on that point, you know, in order to even get on the ballot as a petition candidate, you need three thousand signatures from alumni, and so that necessarily means that you have to run. On something you know you can't just go around and say like oh yeah I like me because I'm not them you know and we know we know that what we're running on is not something that every single alum supports uh, you know at, at the end of the day it's a democratic election and you just need more votes than the other people but if what comes out of this is that the alumni association now starts allowing or encouraging its own candidates that it selects to really be able to state their views and share their views with, with the alumni community. And then now alumni like you, you know, have broader choice to really vote for someone who actually aligns with you on, on where you want the university to go. You know, I, I think we would, we would take our chances with that. We, we still think that our, our platform is broadly popular, but the alumni in the university would be much better off by being able to choose among candidates that actually share what their vision for the university is, even if it's not exactly the same vision that we are proposing.
5: Well, I appreciate all of that. And I, and, 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 and I really fully appreciate it. And I'm not really oppositional at all to the method that, that you wish to use. I will tell you though, um, because I've done what you've done in other, in other organizations systems, there's still a strong tendency when I get into power <laughs> um, I, I want to bring about uh, positions that I am for, not not positions that that other people are for. I mean, this is this is the na- nature of organizational politics. So so anyway you 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 frame it, I guess I guess I, I'm, I'm still I'm still not as persuaded as I want to be because I want to have a judgment of the ideas you're putting forward so so i would i would perhaps make th- simplify the conversation into saying all right so there's one thing about access there's one thing about access to the decision making and and i i love your position on that which is to say i would like it to be more transparent more logical clearer so that i can have access to the decision making i will grant you that and in but but um Fred doesn't want me to deal with the other issue, which is dear to me, which is <laughs> I. When you elect me, you know um, I, I. I want my ideas to uh, to get to the forefront and to be predominant also, and and that for me is always the 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 difficulty when we get into the political conversations. But but I grant you, I I appreciate very much the structural access question that you're dealing with and i don't have uh, I, you know I, I support that and i think it makes a lot of sense um but but you haven't said told me anything yet that that would have leave me fascinated that really uh, the harvard forward is 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 pushing ideas that would make me as an alumnus interested in saying this is fantastic and 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 to some extent um even when you get in there, I, I'm going to throw a challenge to you. I am telling you that this is how groups behave. You're not going to be interested in as much my ideas as the ones that you, that are the people who have been elected, are really interested in pushing. I mean, I, I, I don't know anybody facing a table with power, with power and decision-making who says, all right, now I'll decide what the other people want. I mean, it doesn't work that way in organizational politics. It simply doesn't. But your, but your access question is a separate question. And I agree with you. That is fundamentally important. How
6: many overseers are
5: there?
1: Yeah, uh, there's 30. There's 30 members of the board. Uh, last year, we, we were able to elect uh, three new members. So there's already three candidates that were elected through Harvard Forward. But um, as was mentioned earlier, after we got three elected, they passed a new rule that said, only six people at a time can serve on the board after having been petition candidates. Well that
6: means now these these three now who are on there, what have they revealed about the process, the goals, the objectives, the behavior of the board or the running of the university that that have been shared with your group or with the body of alumni at large? that we didn't know before, couldn't know before,
1: and now we do know. So um, they, they're they under a lot of <laughs> non-disclosure agreements, uh, and- are those
6: agreements. Are those agreements something that have been put out where the whole body of the Harvard community knows the agreements say such and such, and this is what they're doing or limiting? Because I, I have a concern yeah. about a body of, we, we here at the University of Michigan where I've worked, um, we have the Board of Regents. Yeah. And um, I don't want the Board of Regents, nor do I want the overseers to be interfering with the academic life of the university all that much. I want them to be, if they're supposed to be there for uh, whatever they're for with money and operations, but you know, they do touch on that area, but I don't want them to be able to tell someone what kind of courses, what kind of majors, what kind of departments. I don't want them to be involved in any of that. Whether, uh, you know, whether I might agree with a section of them or not. Here at Michigan, we had a fight over the divestment of South Africa in the uh, 80s. And I was uh, part as a staff member in the movement. And we convinced the Board of Regents who were made up of the same kind of money people who have always been there you may know that Upton Sinclair studied the whole structure of governance of universities in 1923 with a book called The Goose Step. If you haven't seen it, look online about The Goose Step. He he showed how the boards uh, reflected the corporations and monopolies of, of the regions that they sat in, in public and private institutions. Uh, anyway, um, these people, we convinced, on the issue of the divestment, and using the arguments of what the university is supposed to be for, and public education, and all of the values, we convinced them to divest. And we didn't even we didn't need to have our own regents or run a board, you know, try to get involved with who's going to become the regent and all that kind of thing, because if you struggle as students, faculty, alumni, if you have a an issue that highlights. A particular injustice, and campaign and working and hard for it, you can you can achieve things without going through this. Uh, you know, you know the, the, having people on the board, in other words, is not necessarily a key thing for achieving. Not that it's bad, but it's not necessarily a, a prerequisite for victory in a given struggle.
4: If I may say, um, if you look at the bios that are part of the ballots for overseers, they don't talk about points of view. They talk about, I mean, it's like an extended curriculum vitae, where you've been, what you've done, what you've written, um, where you've studied, where you have degrees, but your point of view about anything is not a part of what is promulgated to the voting alumni.
6: Don't you look at their experience and what kind of institutions they've been with and what those are like? I always do because I... I yes, yes, yes.
3: I still have not heard
0: exactly what has been accomplished by the three members of Harvard Forward that are currently on the board and I understand they have non-disclosure agreements but have you seen any change in terms of the board of overseers? Are there any policies that you've been pushing that have been effectuated at this point in time?
1: So, uh, I mean, one of the biggest successes, uh, and this happened in, in their first um, in their first meeting, Harvard did adopt the a new policy going forward that every single one of the visiting committees should have a recent graduate sitting on it, um, which was a big, big part of the Harvard Forward platform. Uh, and again, I just want to be be clear that. Um, our push for having recent graduates and, and younger graduates be part of the decision making is, is supposed to be additive, right? We're not saying that we shouldn't have uh, perspectives of people who graduated earlier. Uh, it's just that without having people who have been Harvard students in the twenty-first century, you, you just cannot make a fully informed decision. Um, and so that's, you know, that that's going to change Harvard's governance forever <laughs> to have um recent alumni and in, in in every single visiting committee um, i mean we've, we've also heard from them you know within the confines of their uh ndas that just what ron was saying is that they have now the the platform to speak every time an issue is coming up before the board even if with three bo- three votes out of 30 you, you're not gonna win that many votes or you're not gonna swing that many votes um, they have the ability to push everyone else on the board to think about how any decision they're that they're taking on one issue or another um is you know fitting in with this framework of racial justice climate justice um and you know i, I mean this might be more than i'm supposed to share but they've told us that I, they, they feel like they have um disrupted to some extent um the like rubber stamping you know of what used to be really form like pro forma uh, processes of the board, where no one no one raises any issues and things just kind of move along, uh, that they have the ability to stop a lot of those processes and get people to really think or justify why they're, you know, consenting to, to something that they haven't given much thought before. I want to um, bring up a an anecdote that I think is going to tie going back to. Uh, John's point about, you know, having people on the board is not a prerequisite to getting stuff done. Uh, Fred's point about uh, people not sharing their views on the, on the ballots. Um, and then the broader point about um, the, you know, fight for uh, divesting from apartheid South Africa is that our campaign is actually only the second campaign Successful petition campaign ever in Harvard's history. Um, the first one and the one that you know inspired a lot of what we've been uh, doing, both in terms of the platform and in terms of our tactics, was one by um, alumni exactly protesting Harvard's investments in South African apartheid. Um, called the Harvard Radcliffe Alumni Against Apartheid in the late 80s. Um, so the first thing I'll say is they started it happened in the
4: late 60s too.
1: Yes, um, but the, the people, the only, I think, as far as the Crimson goes, the only people that have been successfully elected to um, the board of petition candidates came from the anti-apartheid group. And they started running petition candidates in the late 80s, which I think, as you all know, is towards the, towards the latter part of the uh, divestment from South Africa movement, uh, because years and years of student activism had not gotten Harvard to budge on the issue. Um, and so we, we see this in a similar context in that we're not we're not we, we didn't invent, you know, fossil fuel divestment we we didn't invent prison divestment. These are these are pushes that student activists and, and alumni activists have been trying to engage Harvard with uh, for years to know significant progress. Um, and so we're seeing this strategy as a complement. To the other type of organizing that is already happening, because we understand, you know, you need you need pressure from the outside to get things done. We think that if we get people on the inside who can push from the inside out, we can hopefully accelerate that that pressure. We're not trying to say that this this is the right way to do it, or, or that the other people are doing it the wrong way. Um, but what happened in the 80s when this group of alumni got on the ballot by petition and started getting candidates elected to the board is the very first year they really, they ran as protest candidates. They were not expecting to win. And we've talked to some of the people who went and they used the entirety of their 750 words on the bio to just advocate for divestment from South Africa, you know, and they saw that as a way to get Harvard to pay for, you know, pro-divestment propaganda that it would be forced to send out to all its hundreds of thousands of alumni uh, to get them, you know, aware of the issue, to get them to care about stuff. Um, And then some of them got elected, (laughs) you know, and after that, Harvard said, okay, we're going to rethink the whole petition candidacy thing to, among other things, really increase the number of petition signatures that you need to get on the ballot, but also they cut down the length of the ballot bios from 750 words to 250 words, so that all that you could get on there. Like, here's where I went. To, yeah, here, here's where I went to school. Here's what I've done professionally. Here's a quote. You know that you could substitute and it wouldn't make a difference. Um, so that's what we had to contend with, with when filling out our ballot bios. But they were budged, actually.
6: You know, they weren't budged right away, but through the constant effort, they finally these institutions. Can be affected. Can be changed. If yes.
1: No. Know. No. I, I think. I think we're saying the same thing. We, we're just trying to add, you know, one more avenue through which we can pressure Harvard so that we can just do it from all sides at once.
3: All right, Bill. I have one question. I was. I was a little startled when you said that only two percent of the investment of the uh, endowment is is publicly available. Is not information about it. Is that true? Is that Did you say that?
1: I did say that, yes.
3: Yes, I find that quite startling. Maybe I shouldn't be startled, but I am. (laughs) It seems to me that far more important than the uh, kind of interstices of the individual things that you are doing is uh, generating the kind of public awareness, public relations uh, that is needed in order to make all the people on the inside really nervous about the fact that there's no damn accountability uh, and that they look bad on that account uh, because they really desperately care about how they look uh, and they care about how they look all over the world. Uh, So anyhow, for whatever that's worth, uh, it seems to me that... uh, an even more important component to what you're doing uh, than just getting people elected, is describing why in the hell you're pissed off, uh, and describing it to the widest possible audience, and especially to an audience uh, over which uh, Harvard has essentially no control of generating a response to you. Uh, You can get that message out uh, into the third world, uh, and they don't have any effective way other than their news releases uh, to counter that. Uh, so it, 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 it's this classic thing of how do you, how do you prevail from an asymmetric position uh, where the asymmetry uh, is against you?
2: Thank you so much, and and sorry, just really briefly, I I just wanted to at least share my kind of parting words here. Um, One is just profound thanks to all of the perspectives that you've shared, Um, because I I think it's really thought provoking and it's it's exactly why um, I think this process is so important. But the the last thing I wanted to just say is that I personally am not running um, for the Harvard board of overseers because I wanna win. I am running on the Harvard Forward platform because I deeply want to see change. And I think that change is both on the issues that I care about, um, that so many other alumni have talked about caring about, um, on racial and and climate justice, on more inclusive governance, but it's also on valuing and bringing forward different voices that the university hasn't valued in the past. So just my gratitude uh, to all of you for this conversation today.
0: Okay, Nathan? Thank you.
1: If anyone wants to follow up, um, you know we, we are a movement of alumni by alumni. Anyone that wants to join and wants to move Harvard forward is, is part of the crew. so
0: That's it for episode 18 of the Last Negroes at Harvard Podcast. I'm Kent Garrett, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.